Welcome everyone to this special edition of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M. And this time we're gonna be going back in time a little bit to a few months ago when there was a three-part series on insulin resistance. Today we're going to go deep into the why food is driving immune dysregulation, which we're seeing of as inflammation and diseases. Uh, this is really, truly one of the most important topics that I've covered in the last 10, 11 or so years. And there's a lot of information here for you to sort of think about and spend time trying to understand where in your life these breakpoints may be occurring for you and for your children so that you can put in some serious effort into changing your at-risk for disease paradigm. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided today in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and it is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. So let's get into it. Insulin resistance really truly is one of the most important preventable human diseases that seems to be at the root or the headwaters of the river of most of the diseases of chronic aging. It's a key cog in the machine of what we call metabolic dysfunction or metabolic disease and all the comorbid diseases and death that follows. To really understand insulin resistance is to really understand the etiology of the environmental genetic mismatch that gives us a true understanding of the devastating effects of food specifically in overuse and the wrong types causing the diseases that we're seeing and the destruction of human physiology. In order to really understand insulin resistance, let's first define it. It's really a complex issue to understand the nuances of what we used to think insulin resistance was in the theories of old as I was taught in medical school versus what we look at today in the most cutting edge of the scientific literature that's coming out there. Historically, my medical education pegged insulin resistance as a problem of overproduction of the sugar-storing hormone insulin in response to the excess ingested dietary sugar that was unable to get into our cell because of a defect in a glucose sugar transporter. The definition was partially but not completely correct, as we will see over you know, the rest of this discussion. The critical importance of this discussion rests on the fact that when we truly and correctly define insulin resistance, we will see that chronic insulin resistance is associated with all of the chronic diseases of aging, including cardiac coronary vascular arthrosclerosis, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. Add the current COVID-19 pandemic to this list and we see that insulin resistance to some extent is at the root cause of most of healthcare's gross expenditures and human morbidity. The root cause of insulin resistance, as we will discuss, is a combination primarily of genetic predisposition, dietary influences, and a lack of physical movement coupled to a lesser extent with chemical exposure and intestinal microbiome dysfunction. We're going to focus on the key cause food. All right, let us just say, and I'll come back to this point over and over again over this audio recording. Insulin resistance is the beginning of a continuum that ends with diabetes and metabolic syndrome after many years. This continuum starts with insulin resistance, which can progress to a non-alcoholic fatty liver, 
to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is basically liver inflammation, and then to diabetes mellitus, which we all know at this point is when the blood sugar rises uncontrollably in our bloodstream with or without meals. You will have been insulin resistant for many, many years before you begin to have signs of persistent elevations in blood sugar levels. Therein lies the conundrum. If you are unaware that your dietary and exercise decisions are leading to massive spikes in insulin to compensate for the excessive sugar that is coming from your behaviors, the damage is silent because physicians are only tracking blood glucose, which takes a long time to go sideways in the bloodstream. What I mean by this is by the time we measure elevations in blood sugar that are persistent, you've been insulin resistant for quite many years. This is a critical point in this discussion. Just like with autoimmune disease, the elevated destructive antibody level that predates symptomatology in these disorders like Crohn's and celiac disease, this is akin to elevated insulin levels pre-chronic hyperglycemia or elevated blood sugars. Early, when detected, elevated insulin level or autoimmune antibody level is the place that we should be starting the discussion of disease avoidance. To wait until you have autoimmune thyroiditis or diabetes or celiac disease makes little sense to me. Depending on the study, 50 to 80% of Americans are insulin resistant at this moment in time, according to the experts. That is a lot of disease risk burning slowly in the human population in this country. It is a large fire that is burning daily. The human body is slowly suffering and unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of problems downstream in children and then much more commonly in adults. What you're going to learn over the remainder of this audio cast is that excess consumption of fats and sugars cause a cascade of events that leads to failure of a glucose transporter to shuttle sugar into the muscle, causing it to begin to rise in the blood, in turn causing more insulin to be released by the pancreas to, to dispose of the sugar in fat cells, known as peripheral and visceral adipose tissue or fat tissue as well as secondarily in another place called the liver. Effectively, this drives fat deposition, inflammation, and over a decade or two, diabetes and heart disease. The details are important to me as this is the way we really understand, explain the reasons why our behavior change is useful to us and our current behavior is unfortunately bad for us. Okay. So in order to understand insulin resistance, we really need to understand the basics of glucose sugar metabolism. When we consume sugar as glucose through carbohydrate-laden foods like white bread, pasta, or even sugar as beverages, the carbohydrates are absorbed in our intestines after they are broken down from complex hydrocarbon structures to the molecule glucose via salivary enzymes, stomach acid, and enzymes released from your pancreas. The glucose is then absorbed into the bloodstream where it will travel primarily to the brain, muscles, as well as the liver. It is burned in the brain and muscles for energy or can be stored in the liver or muscle as glycogen. Glycogen is necessary in humans as a rapid energy source as it is a storable form of sugar in chains. This is useful for movement and activity. Insulin is the hormone that has the primary function of transporting glucose into these cells for storage. Insulin, depending on the cell type it is being used on, will tell a receptor on the cell surface to signal the cell to make a glucose transporter. Transport it to the cell membrane, open and allow glucose to enter the cell for utilization and or storage. 
In the case of the muscle and liver cell, they use the insulin to help take up glucose to store it as glycogen. Insulin also signals the liver to stop making its own glucose by stopping a process called gluconeogenesis, which would otherwise further compound rising blood sugars by making glucose from other building blocks. If the insulin signal is not received by these cells, these processes break down and we call that insulin resistance. A broken signal will lead to a broken function and then on to disease over time. It turns out that the primary driver of lost signal or insulin resistance is occurring at the muscle cell membrane when the glucose transporter known as GLUT4 fails to migrate to the cell surface in response to dietary sugar ingestion and insulin release. The failed migration traps glucose in the bloodstream. That is a problem. So why are we not immediately hyperglycemic or have too much sugar in our blood when measured? The simple answer is that for a long while, the body overcompensates by making ever more insulin hormone to force the sugar into the cells of the liver and fat adipose tissue. Increased blood sugar then drives increased release of insulin and then storage is fat and not as glycogen in the muscle. Insulin causes the liver to take glucose and make free fatty acids out of it which are then packaged in lipoprotein cars for transport that eventually end up as a triglyceride or a storage form of fat. Let me repeat that again. Insulin tells the liver to take the sugar and make what's called free fatty acids out of it, eventually becoming something called a triglyceride, which is a storage form of fat, and then transported around in these cars, I call them cars, that are called lipoprotein cars. So they're low-density lipoprotein. People have heard of this from cardiovascular diseases, LDL or VLDL. But specifically, the bottom line is the insulin tells the liver to take the sugar, store it as a fat storage form, and transport it around the body. Now here comes the crazy part. It is not the glucose or the sugar that is driving this problem per se. It is actually ingested and released fat as fatty acids that is causing the GLUT4 transporter not to translocate to the cell surface and therefore not to allow sugar to be pushed into the cell. And this is the critical part. You don't need to get bogged down in the specific details other than the big problem now we're finding is that the fats in high volume are telling the body not to make these GLUT4 glucose transporters to send them to the cell surface and allow glucose to get into the muscle, which then changes all the physiology of how we store sugar and what happens. This is the critical point. Sugar then gets trapped in the bloodstream, but it is fat that is the root cause of the insulin not working. And this is the big deal. And we're going to get deeper into this. So why would this be? We have to go back thousands of years to answer this question. Unlike today, humans have never had a common and never-ending source of fuel to ingest. They routinely went through periods of feast and famine. Thus, the evolution of our ability to metabolize food led to the storage of excess food for rainy days while always preserving sugar for our brain's critical functioning. This is the critical understanding as to why this insulin resistance problem is occurring. In normal historical times, the genes involved in storing, excuse me, the genes involved in storing calories as fat in the liver and adipose tissue were advantageous to humans when food was scarce. Now we are polar bears living in the desert. We are genetically mismatched for our environment and our behaviors within it. 
Just like human issues around vitamin D development when skin color and sun exposure levels have become mismatched, food excess and our genes no longer play well together. All right, let's move on to some of the harder science part. When we consume large volumes of fat as a dietary calorie source, we begin to store fatty acids as a carbon chain called a triglycerides. It is the main source of energy stored throughout the human body and most mammals. However, under excess fat ingestion conditions, a precursor of the triglyceride called diglyceride or diacylglycerol, what I call DAG, D-A-G for short, goes up in volume and has a profound effect on cellular metabolism. This is the inflection point or the headwaters of the river where insulin resistance begins. The DAG molecule or diacylglycerol causes a local change through a few intermediates known as PKC which turns off the insulin receptor's activity and turns off PI3 kinase activity, stopping the translocation of the GLUT4 transport to the cell membrane surface. This effectively prevents glucose from entering the muscle cell, thus trapping it in the bloodstream. There are drawings on the uh, Google images if you wanted to see this. You could look up insulin resistance DAG molecule. So at this point, the glucose levels in the bloodstream begin to rise, causing the body to secrete ever more amounts of insulin to try and shove the glucose into a cell and out of circulation. This is known as hyperinsulinemia and brings us to step number two in the damage cycle of insulin resistance. Insulin travels all over the body to handle the bloodstream trapped sugar. The big issue arises when the insulin hormone hits the liver. Under normal conditions, insulin has two major roles in the liver. First, it shuts off the liver's ability to make more glucose via a process called gluconeogenesis. This is useful when you have plenty of sugar on board. Second, it tells the liver to make fat. Therefore, excessive insulin will lead to fatty liver. Over time, the fat cells become metabolically and immunologically active, leading to hepatic inflammation and possibly cirrhosis or fibrosis. This event is a normal physiologic response to the excesses of sugar consumption. And what ends up happening is inflammation and hardening of the attacked cells. All right, let me recap this. So what we have at this point is excessive amounts of ingested fats cause the hormone insulin to not be functional at the muscle level, leaving blood sugar, blood glucose stranded in the bloodstream, driving up the production of insulin, which in turn causes fat deposition and inflammation in the liver and in the peripheral fat cells or adipose tissue. This is how the stage is set for the chronic disease development that we're going to talk about. Now, at this point, you can already guess how ingested sugar becomes an exacerbate in this process. The excessive fatty acid ingestion and production can lead to insulin resistance. This point is solid based on the evidence. What happens when we throw large volumes of sugar into this mix? So we have sugar-laden beverages coupled to refined flour, sugar, and fat-based processed foods eaten in high volume all over America. This is the quintessential American diet now for a lot of people. What happens? So the insulin resistance mechanism, as discussed, has caused the ingested sugar or glucose to stay in the bloodstream, raising blood sugar levels temporarily until more insulin is made to force the sugar into the fat cells. This process continues meal upon meal, day upon day, year upon year. If there is a large sugar gradient based on the high volume consumed, there will be a large insulin volume produced to handle each and every time. 
The excess sugar forces the production of the free fatty acids we talked about earlier, which is then deposited in the liver, causing a fatty liver, again, the hallmark of insulin resistance. The excess free fatty acids will also need lots of lipoprotein transporting cars to move them all over the body and store as fat. This is the point where your doctor tells you that you have high lipids or these lipoprotein cars and you are at risk for heart disease. So the liver is the chemical factory of the human body. It will do what it does based on what we choose to eat. Let us take a closer look at the liver because this is really important. The muscle's insulin resistance forced the excess sugar to stay in the bloodstream, driving up insulin release overall. We've proven that. The blood sugar and the circulating insulin now head to the liver, where they are profoundly negatively affecting the physiologic nature of the liver. As stated previously, the liver becomes fatty. Why? Okay. In the liver, glucose enters the cell independent of insulin. This is critical. It's independent of insulin through a different glucose transporter called GLUT2. The muscle is GLUT4, in this case it's GLUT2. Unlike the muscle cell, glucose is not trapped when it arrives at the liver cell. Normally, insulin's effect in the liver cell is to store glucose as glycogen, the storage form, and also turn off any excess glucose production occurring through gluconeogenesis. Normally, 83% of the body's glycogen is found in the muscle. But in the insulin-resistant state, this storage location is lost. Thus, only the liver can handle the excess glucose flux. With the ability to form glycogen loss, the liver turns to making free fatty acids. Compounding this problem is the fact that the liver is also not receiving the signal from insulin to stop making its own glucose sugar. The liver is then left making its own sugar in perpetuity while taking an excess sugar from the bloodstream. This is a toxic load. It is also converting uh, the sugar to free fatty acids to be packaged as these storage form triglycerides, which are then put into lipoproteins like LDL, coupled to the cholesterol that we all know of in our risk for heart disease. The lipoproteins are then sent all over the body for storage. The low-density lipoprotein, or LDL particle number, is the biomarker of risk for coronary atherosclerotic heart disease. Therefore, if we chronically overconsume fat and sugar food bombs, the liver will make lots of LDL particles, or these little cars, to transport the triglycerides in their trunk. Now we find one great link between diabetes and heart disease, processed foods. And oh, by the way, one of the number one risk factors for heart disease, or a myocardial infarction, what we call a heart attack, happens to be diabetes. So here we are. Over-ingested fats are causing insulin to not trigger the signal for glucose to enter the liver or muscle cell to be stored as glycogen and or burned as fuel. The combination of the excess sugar and fat ingestion simultaneously has provided a nutrient gradient with glucose levels rising in the blood, forcing the pancreas to pump out more insulin, which in turn forces the liver to convert the excess sugar into fatty acids, which are packaged in lipoproteins and transported to our fat cells, driving obesity and heart disease. We are left with the excesses of our choices damaging our most vital organs. All right, folks, I'm going to take a pause here so everyone can get a drink or... Do whatever you need to do, because I'm about to continue with part two of the insulin resistance story. Have you ever thought you needed special gum? Well, here's a commercial for you. No, I'm just kidding. No ads here, folks. Let's move on to insulin resistance part two. To understand why the human body would have these pathways in place that seem to be damaging, we again have to look back in time. 
As stated earlier, humans had frequently experienced starvation and periods of food scarcity, leaving them dependent on their body stores of fat to survive the time frame where food was lacking. Thus, during times of plenty, the insulin resistance mechanisms would have allowed the liver and the muscles to store fat for the rainy day. The glycogen stores from glucose uptake and storage are depleted in one to two days following a prolonged fast. Thus, fat is the source of long-term fuel and survival during a prolonged fast. During this fast, insulin turns off, the mechanisms flip-flop, whereby fats are broken down for fuel and glucose is produced by the liver through gluconeogenesis. It all makes sense in a historical nutrient normal situation. What does insulin do to the fat cell outside of the liver? In this case, insulin blocks the breakdown of the fat cell, a process called lipolysis. Again, we see the insulin in the fed state acting as a storage hormone. The fasted state will reverse this process, breaking down fats in the periphery and the liver, providing a fuel source for glucose production. This process keeps us alive and healthful until the ingestion of food returns. No matter what happens during starvation, the body will continue to make glucose from fats and proteins until we die, primarily for brain activity. It will continue to keep glucose available to the brain by shutting off glucose storage as glycogen or fat. Everything in this process happens for a reason. It is an amazingly elegant system until we, humans, mess with it. The rub occurs when we live through an endless summer of caloric availability to our absolute detriment based on the repeated theme of caloric excess in the face of genetic risk, sedentary behavior, and toxin exposure. These beautifully elegant pathways then, unfortunately, start to work against us. The next piece of this discussion is the dreaded word, inflammation. Insulin resistance will eventually turn into the frank diabetes and other chronic diseases that we worry about. Inflammation and immune activation are the keys to this next stage after we have eaten ourselves and relaxed ourselves into trouble. Inflammation is the process by which the body rids itself of pathogens or heals an injured part of the body. The immune system is recruited to an area based on an injury or pathogen. These cells of varying types will sense a danger and secrete chemicals called chemokines and cytokines that are cell signals for defense and repair. In the normal state, the body recruits immune cells to an area, destroys the damaging event, and repairs the damage to baseline of normalcy. Now let's say that the immune cells keep getting called to the same area over and over again. The damage will become persistent and the repair will not have a chance to occur. This is simplistically what happens in the prolonged insulin resistance and hyperglycemic state. Then with time we lose function and then we call it a disease. It has become very clear now through scientific discovery that prolonged high fat diets coupled with high refined sugar diets will drive immune cells to become aggressive and pro-inflammatory at the target tissues. This leads to further insulin signaling defects, compounding the effects of DAG or diacylglycerol on the translocation of the glucose transporter known as GLUT4. The immune system, through innate immune pathogen sensing mechanisms, uses primitive pathogen-specific pattern recognition cells called toll-like receptors and fireballs called inflammasomes to recognize and kill foreign invaders. These activities are also turned on by saturated animal-based fats, as well as omega-6 type free fatty acids commonly found in our processed foods. The why this occurs is still unknown. However, it does and we have to follow the science. This evolved area of research will eventually find out the why. Certain fatty acids trigger immune activation while others, like omega-3 fats found in fish oil, do the opposite. 
To say that this is a complex topic is a serious understatement. Therefore, the complexities of immunity and inflammation as they relate to diet and insulin resistance are beyond the scope of this piece. Suffice it to say that in the balanced state, the ingestion of fats and sugars are directly tied to how your innate immune system responds to pathogens, infections, and the like, as well as to your own tissues. Okay, let us look briefly at fructose or fruit sugar. Glucose and fructose are roughly the same molecule, where the difference comes down to a 5-carbon ring for fructose versus a 6-carbon ring for glucose. How they are seen by the body is vastly different, though. Whereas glucose can be metabolized anywhere in the body, fructose is almost entirely metabolized in the liver. It is primarily metabolized into free fatty acids as soon as the liver has met its energy needs. This happens every day now based on the excess caloric ingestion of the American diet. Thus, fructose ingestion has a special designation as a generator of free fatty acids to package and ship to the fat cells as triglycerides, the storage form, or to stay in the liver and make it fat. Unfortunately, fructose also makes excess diacylglycerol, or DAG, further driving the insulin resistance problem. Evolutionarily, the consumption of fruit sugar, fructose, was a blessing for all of the reasons discussed. A few times a year, trees and bushes would fruit, allowing humans to eat in volume, driving fat deposition for storage, survival of the fit, and well-fed. Today, unfortunately, very few Americans are lacking calories. The opposite actually is true. Many children drink large amounts of fruit juice daily. It takes four to five apples to make eight ounces of apple juice. Do you know a child that will eat more than one apple in a sitting? In general, they don't. Eight ounces of juice, on the other hand, simple. So therefore, too much sugar volume for too long a time frame is the issue. What we know clearly now is that as our diet has become more Americanized with refined sugar and fat bombs like donuts washed down with a frappuccino, and this change has amplified the inflammatory state of our innate immune system, causing it to work against us by promoting insulin resistance in the muscle, liver, and fat cells all over our bodies. The subsequent inflammation drives local tissue damage, where the immune cells are recruited too. The end result is that over time, systemic inflammation will lead to diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and metabolic syndrome. Now the rubber has met the road and we are sick. We can and do eat ourselves into disease. All right. So how does the intestinal microbiome play into all of this? Is it the chicken or the egg? The answer is still hotly debated. To me, it would make the most sense that they all work in concert. Remember that a pregnant woman at conception will change her microbial intestinal flora to aid in the storage of fat, essentially becoming insulin resistant to prepare the child for breastfeeding and to prepare actually for the birth of the child. There are no mistakes in nature. There are reams of studies showing that the intestinal flora, the gut bugs, the bacteria are altered in the obese and insulin resistant human state. There are also reams of studies showing that these altered gut bugs, flora, are prone to encouraging human caloric storage and immune inflammatory states. The flora are changed directly by dietary influences. Shocker. Now we see refined carbohydrates and saturated fats promote the type of microbes that promote hyperlipidemia or what we call cholesterol issues, hyperinsulinemia, and hyperglycemia. So all the over-fat, over-insulin, over-sugar state promoted by our gut bugs. And the gut bugs are promoted by our diet. So it is a chicken and egg situation. They all are in concert working in circles together. 
So it appears from all of the research that the food source for us is ground zero for dysfunction. We develop disease through various routes, whether they be microbially, inflammatorily, metabolically. The genes that were given to us many years ago to protect us from starvation induced death are now causing us harm primarily because of our dietary choices and our lifestyle choices. There is one major piece of the puzzle that we must touch on, exercise. The age-old discussion of movement versus sitting as a route to disease is amplified in this case. When we move, we burn energy to activate our muscles via a chemical called ATP. Adenosine monophosphate is the precursor form. ATP is adenosine triphosphate, where they have three phosphate groups attached. A little bit sciencey, but it's important. Exercise has an immediate effect on the enzyme adenosine monophosphate kinase, or AMPK, which is a master metabolic regulating enzyme that produces ATP, the energy form for muscle activity and movement. It turns off in the presence of excess glucose and it turns on with exercise. So AMPK directly increases the translocation of the glucose transporter known as GLUT4 to the surface of the muscle cells, thereby increasing glucose movement or flux into the muscle, promoting storage as glycogen and reducing blood glucose levels and therefore insulin need. This is the direct antagonist to diet-induced insulin resistance problems. So they are literally on opposite sides of the seesaw. You exercise, you need less insulin, you eat uh, the wrong food, you need more insulin. You don't exercise, you need more insulin, you eat the right foods, you need less insulin. So you can see these are two ends of the same spectrum. Okay, so the take home to this is, the more you move in theory and in study, the more calories you will have to burn to generate ATP for energy. And therefore you will need more GLUT4 transporters to go to the cell surface to allow glucose into the muscle for burning. This is an elegant plan for activity and survival. This process is perfect until we choose to sit all day long while we eat like a king or queen and forget to move. How do we reverse this process? Okay, I'm looking at this as a fourfold answer. Number one, the most obvious answer is to change the volume and quality of the ingested food sources. Sugar, flour, and saturated fats consumed in high volume are the major triggers of insulin resistance. Returning to a whole food, high fiber diet with no added sugars will profoundly change the inputs that cause insulin resistance. Saturated fat in and of itself is not dangerous in moderation and coupled with fiber and normal whole foods. The anti-inflammatory diet or a Whole30 diet is a perfect place to start your new dietary journey. You can go to www.3w's.drweil.com and look up anti-inflammatory diet. You can actually put in Google Dr. Weil anti-inflammatory diet. It'll take you right there. Second, having periods of restriction from calories as a fast or a time-restricted feeding pattern will give the system time to heal. Eating in an 18 to 6 pattern is ideal for individuals past 18 years of age and likely younger as well. This means that you compress your meals into a six hour window. Whatever six hour window is that you choose, but I would choose it to be during the light hours of the day to access circadian rhythm biology. This allows for long periods of caloric deprivation, pushing the metabolic system to shift into breakdown mode as opposed to storage mode. For younger children, I encourage eating only when they're hungry. That is critical. Only present high quality anti-inflammatory food types to eat and you are well on your way to health and childhood insulin resistance avoidance. Avoid, avoid, avoid sugared beverages as juice, soda, sweet tea, flavored milks, etc. Avoid all processed foods if you can. Thirdly, 
Exercise is a powerful tool to reverse insulin resistance by directly increasing the translocation of the GLUT4 transporter, the glucose transporter to the cell surface and thereby move sugar into the cell, helping reduce insulin problems. Move often daily and with purpose. Not much more to say here other than the family-based activities are great for collective encouragement and keeping your kids active. Number four, learn to reduce chronic mental stress. Stress dramatically affects blood glucose levels, raising them due to the release of stress hormones from the adrenal gland. Stress also turns on inflammatory pathways, systemically worsening the insulin resistance issues. Okay, so that is a long, 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 I don't know how many minutes that was, discussion on the causes and hopefully a greater understanding of the physiology of why we get insulin resistant. There are a few more things I want to say. And this is basically what can else can you add into the mix, like herbs and supplements? How can they be used to augment this process? So I'm going to look at a couple different things. So omega-3 fatty acids, it's a supplement found primarily as fish oil and other foods like flax seeds can be used as a major source of anti-inflammatory compounds that are in the what we call the resolvents, protectins, and defensins. These are chemicals that help decrease inflammation systemically. I encourage personally small oily fish consumption like mackerel, salmon, sardines, and trout. This helps avoid high uh, amounts of heavy metals like mercury that are uh, found in fish that are of larger size like shark or uh, tuna or uh, what's the other big one? Grouper. So therefore, a high quality fish oil supplement is something I think is a good idea. Polyphenol supplements and foods. So polyphenols are chemicals that are found in berries, green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, onions, cocoa, other plants like that. They are very potent sources of anti-inflammatory compounds and actually are known to work directly against insulin resistance at the inflammation cellular level. Love these things. So basically anti-inflammatory diet all day long. Curcumin or turmeric is is basically a special herb for it has a potent anti-inflammatory effect on something called NF-kappa B, nuclear factor kappa B, which is a major source of inflammation cellular in the body. NF-kappa B is a good thing unless you get too much of it, which we see in these cases like we talked about. So taking curcumin or turmeric as a supplement or putting it in your food is a very good way to reduce the inflammation side of the equation and insulin resistance. Another one would be vitamin complexes. They can augment conversions of fats and sugars and proteins into acetyl-CoA for energy generation of ATP like we talked about earlier. So green beans, nuts, um, legumes in general are great sources of B vitamins, which are very useful for in this process of converting the macronutrients into energy. Magnesium, on the other hand, is something that we can use for promoting the activity of an enzyme called tyrosine kinase, which helps insulin receptor activity work and also increases glucose transport and is also known uh, to increase cellular glucose utilization, directly reducing insulin resistance peripherally. So in general, magnesium is something that is a, a, a mineral found in the earth that we have as supplements or in foods. It's very useful in helping decrease insulin resistance at the cell level. Alpha-lipoic acid is a chemical that elaborates the activity of genes that counteract insulin resistance by turning off glucose production and uh, turning on utilization. So alpha-lipoic acid is something I like. Coenzyme Q10 is a cofactor used in the energy powerhouse of our cells called the mitochondria. They're found in every single cell. It helps to maintain mitochondrial activity, which is critical in cell survival throughout the body and helps, uh, you know, in some ways decrease cellular damage, which is very useful for pr- reducing aging senescence. 
Berberine is one of my favorites. This is a herb that has been shown in quality studies to increase the activity of adenosine monophosphate kinase and also the glucose 4 transporter, counteracting the standard American diet and sloth as well. So berberine is a very good herb. Now, this does not say, by taking berberine does not mean that you're going to be able to sit on your butt and eat poorly. So it's just an adjunctive piece. All right. So I hope in some way, shape, or form, I've given you a long-winded understanding of why insulin resistance, in my mind, is one of the most critical physiologic dysfunctions happening in humans that is purely based on our lifestyle choices coupled to our inherent genetic profiles. Now, again, the genes are not the problem. It is the activities that we're doing in the face of our genetic makeup that becomes the problem that makes us polar bears in the desert. Again, think of your skin color and where you find yourself. If you were born in, let's say, England, you likely have very light skin and light eyes. If you move yourself to somewhere around the equator, the sun intensity will make your skin disadvantageous. Flip-flop that. If your skin color is that type of somebody born in Brazil or mid-Saharan Africa and you move to the north, then you have a mismatch in the opposite direction. So really understanding your genetic makeup, what the intent of the gene was to help you, will really help you understand how you are making this dysfunctional by your lifestyle choices. And it really isn't rocket science. We need to move often. We need to stay unstressed as best we can mentally right? We need to eat the foods that we were meant to eat, which are the whole foods that are healthy based from earth, mother nature's foods, vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, seeds, meat, fish, beans. I'm not sure I missed anything else. Water, right? And then finally, we really want to avoid chemicals. I didn't get into in this piece, but chemicals are a big driver of insulin resistance as well, because there is data showing that certain chemicals do cause damage to the receptor and at the insulin level. So therefore, there's multiple avenues to this dysfunctional pathway, but the bottom line is the same. We want to spend our time living the way our genes were meant for us to live. And as we discover more through science, we were going to give, we are going to give that information to you, the listener, to hope that you then take this and assimilate it into your lifestyle. So therefore your risk of disease long-term decreases. And frankly, that's my only goal in doing this podcast is to give you information in as palatable a form as possible. Sometimes there's gonna be some hard science in there, but that I think is necessary in order to understand what really is going on. But hopefully if you listen long enough, most of it's broken down into a form that's you know, digestible to help you make decisions for yourself, your kids, your family, your grandfather, whoever you have in your life that you love, that you want to be around long enough for us all to enjoy the beauties of this world. Okay, I think that's enough for today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Um, this is going to be a recurring theme, I think, for the next 20 years. As I interview different people, we're going to probably come back and forth to this over time. But just understand, we have genes for a purpose, and the purpose is to keep us alive and help us to make more of each other. So at that note, keep hugging your kids, love them daily, and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Signing off, Dr. M. Have a fabulous week.